Vanessa. Hi, Adam. How's it going? It's been a year. Shana Tova. Wow. That sounded very Jewish, Vanessa. <laughs> was, isn't it the most? Yeah. Also, it's a week late. It is a week late, but can I say Happy New Year to us as podcasters since we've been doing this for about a year? Does it still work? Anniversary. Yes, it is our anniversary episode. Aha. Uh-huh, so I'm not on... I'm not- also, also technically... <laughs> late on that as well but that's okay well that's our style we have been on the the pod air the the pod waves for a year it's Mm -hmm. awesome and in celebration we are bringing back our first guest which is tomer persico our esteemed first guest he's a religious scholar for the hartman institute in jerusalem last time we talked to him he was a roving scholar visiting professor there you go those are the words in uh, uc berkeley and now he's back to Jerusalem. His book, Man in God's Image, is now officially out in Hebrew. It's highly, highly recommended to anybody who reads Hebrew. I recommend if you don't know Hebrew, you should learn. It's a wonderful language. I also seriously recommend uh, listeners who have not heard our first episode with him, go back and listen to it. It's called How the Image of God Made Us All Atheists. And it was very poorly recorded but (laughs) (laughs) but intellectually satisfying culturally emotionally intellectually and spiritually satisfying highly highly recommended because we methodically went through the details of his awesome book and it also laid the groundwork for later conversations that we had with tom holland so go there listen and that will be the setup for this conversation because when i was visiting israel a couple of weeks ago i i met up with him and i wanted to have a conversation about how the book was going and uh some some debates that 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 it has instigated in the israeli culture uh, how he sees things in the u.s now that he's back to the provinces and just you know, what he how it is to be back in israel after so long so we mm-hmm. we had a lot to talk about it and because i'm rude i also brought a mic and because i'm stupid i only brought one mic so <laughs> the conversation was conducted in panel style i suppose with a mic that is not supposed to be a panel style mic and you can hear it was us. fine so i'm obviously not in the conversation because i i was not in in jerusalem but ha- having listened to it as a listener it was fine you're you're in the room it's like bar vibes you're in the room you're, you're in the mic the conversation puts you yes. in the mic you can hear every clang of the <laughs> mic as it passes hands but it's, it's like the it, cinema verite of podcast exactly <laughs> it <great>. was stylistic <laughs> it was a choice <laughs> but it's awesome to talk to him and you know it also reminds me how nice it is to have conversations with people in the same room which is yeah. ironic because we live in the same house and we are in the same house right now and we're still not we're in not. the same room <laughs> Makes it easier to edit, though, man. God bless efficiency. That's the American spirit. <laughs> yes, and also visualism and efficiency, and alienation, which we tweet, and alienation, which is one of the themes of today's podcast. So mm-hmm. to run through it, we talk about the his thesis about the image of God. Again, listen to the first episode. We'll set up mm-hmm. an, a lot of important context. We we yes. go straight in. We assume that you've yeah. been with us the whole way. We do retread a little bit, though. I mean, we just we kind of break down the ancient concept of the self or, and how it differs from our concept today. Which it, we we retread it, but in a, but I, I don't know. I found it uh, interesting to, re, to yeah, it was, revisit it was, those specifically ideas. Specifically, that issue of the inner self was something that was really important for me to 
mm-hmm. dig deeper into this time. Yeah. Talk about this. We talk about the fuck Zeus. Uh, we talk about the role, like how that idea has been the source, the intellectual source of American alienation, and how you know Americans took that idea and really ran with it. And I ask him, to what effect does he think that this alienation and hyper individuation affects our current political crisis? And then we talk about the, you know, the, as, no, as usual, the collapse of the West and the liberal order and how that reflects to the lowly provinces in the Middle East. So it's a fun conversation. I should note, though, that we had this conversation before the collapse of Kabul. So our references mm-hmm. to Afghanistan are a little bit dated. Bear with us. I think the sentiments expressed there still hold we it's, mm-hmm. you can, you'll be able to hear that tomer and i have slightly different perspectives on the state of american soft power around the world but we'll you'll let you decide who is correct and who is tomer persico so mm-hmm. with that shanatova everybody ah shanatova i had it really wrong happy anniversary vanessa we should we should have a drink together later Okay, maybe in the same room at some point. Yes, in the same room, preferably. We will break through our alienation. (laughs) But I, I, hey, listener, if you're still with us, please make sure to have a glass of something, something sharp. Something sharp in your hand did not sound (laughs) appetizing. It sounded violent. Don't do that. Something, something refreshing. (laughs) But alcoholic. And get drunk with us as we discuss God, atheism, and the good stuff. Oh, and by the way, I just published uh, a little essay about the works of Kazuo Ishiguro. So if you're interested in literature and reading, then check it out. It's on our homepage on uncertain.substack.com. If you're feeling generous, follow us, share us with your friends and enemies, and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to support us because it really helps. And with that, Tomer. Happy, happy New Year. Because I'm so technologically challenged we're gonna have to rely on on the panel format whereby i will pass on the mic to tomer every time so if it doesn't have quite the the je ne sais quoi of live conversation this is why but trust me he's right in front of me no screen mediating hi tomer hello adam tomer has just returned to israel after a two-year hiatus three-year hiatus in the the great colonies how is it to be back oh my god well it's many things it's gladdening because this is my home and my friends and my family are here and uh, I'm immediately uh, taking every opportunity I can to eat some falafel, which I missed. And then it's a shock. I mean, it's not California over here. Um, and it's really three years is a significant amount of time and um, I'm getting used to it again. I mean, really, I would say basically... I think I'm I'm in a process of of a bit of a mourning process over the cushy life I've had, which is now no more, uh, and getting used to just regular Jerusalem life, which I know I know very well, but but it's something different. It's a bit because really life in the U.S. and maybe especially in California and maybe especially in the Bay Area and maybe even more so in Berkeley. Is so comfortable. It spoils you, really. It's just everything is handed to you. Everything is made for your convenience, right? It's the whole ethos of the customer is always right, but 
throughout every aspect of your life. You just, you just, you're right all the time because you have the money to be right. As little friction as possible, you know, and, and it, it, the effort is done that you will have as frictionless a life as possible. And it works in many ways. Last time we talked was practically a year ago, probably by the time I actually released it, it will have been a year. And that was, uh, we launched the podcast and it was just before the release of your book, which you have been working on during your uh, uh, Berkeley tenure. Can you give the, the listeners who haven't listened to our first episode just a quick recap of what it's about? The book would have come out a year ago, but did not because of the COVID crisis and came out uh, about a month and a half ago. It's in Hebrew. And uh, to recap briefly, it's a short cultural history of the modern West through the prism of the idea that everybody, every person, every human being is created in the image of God. Uh, so how did that idea, you know, stand in, at the base of many of the social and cultural institutions, which we enjoy sometimes even take for granted, equality, rights discourse, the, the, the ideal of autonomy, uh, obviously democracy, um, um, the right to uh, religion and um, freedom of conscience, etc. right? So, and, and what I'm trying to to do in the book is to show how that idea is fundamental in the structuring of what we today know as the modern West. I want to start with a book. I think thematically, in many ways, it helped us launch the podcast. It came at a time where a lot of people in what we broadly call the West have been struggling with this question of what does it even mean to be part of this West? What is the, is there, is there even a, a unifying narrative? And this is a question that has been asked from the perspective of doubt, confusion, and loss, perhaps on one end, and from a perspective of assault and criticism and trying to deconstruct and, and, and abrogate the, the narrative to what extent it does exist. And so I, I, Give us more about how your, your, your book tries to enter this conversation or, or answer these questions. Right. I mean, these questions are enormously large and, um, and meaningful and, I would say, contentious, right? I mean, um, you just mentioned the... the um, I mean, usually there, there are those who deny that the West is, is unique in a few ways, and there, there are those then that... Do not deny that, but take this as a derogatory reality, right? The West is, is, is unique by being oppressive and colonialistic, etc. But to tell it in, a, in a, maybe a bit of a, a quipful way, I mean, in, a, in, in, in two words, there's an ongoing debate whether to even use a term such as the Judeo-Christian tradition, right? And it gets a lot of slack from the left being, uh, um, you know, triumphalist, uh, exclusionary, perhaps Islamophobic sometimes, and, and sometimes it certainly is uh, used that way in, in, a, in a specific um, um, intention. But I would, I would have to say that, that I wrote a book that, that in a way shows that there is such a thing, that there is some common thread between ancient Judaism that is then taken up by ancient Christianity 
that then is developed throughout the Christian tradition and that then is manifested today in, in what we call the modern West. So uh, there is this common thread. And, and if to, to say what it is, I would use two words. First of all, uh, individuality really the emphasis on the individual, the emphasis on a person being first autonomous, uh, being a subject as in not only carrying subjective consciousness, but being a legal subject, being responsible be for his or her actions, being, um, oh, I forgot that word, which, which there's no equivalent for in Hebrew, not agency, accountability. <laughs> Being accountable. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. For some reason, for some reason. And, and, and so that's, that, that's the first word, individuality. And then interiority. Uh, it's not, of course, I'm not saying that other cultures need not put emphasis on the in, inner worlds. Uh, certainly the, the East, the Far East, Buddhism and Hinduism in different strands placed a lot of emphasis on looking inwards and finding truth inside of course and yet interiority meaning finding sources of meaning of identity and of authority inside ourselves came to a certain type of fruition in the west let's say over the last few hundreds of years and in such a way that that accentuated and underlined the the previous emphasis on individuality and that, again, you know, manifested in what we see today around us. So that should, to break it down, it's interesting. So I, I should tell our listeners that in our first interview, which was conducted over Zoom and before neither Vanessa and I knew how to produce a podcast. So we, we, we were still scrambling to make the audio sound passably good. So expect some decrease in quality. But I think the, the nature of the conversation was was methodically useful. So if you're interested in, in, in a more methodical survey of Tomer's book, I highly recommend re-listening to it where we actually follow Tomer's thesis, which is um, how this little grain of an idea about the the image of God and, and the relationship between the image of God and man being created in the image of God has evolved through the history of, of Judeo-Christian tradition and the changes that it underwent from early Jewish tribes to the Protestant revolution and even is reflected in, as Tomer alluded to, the civil rights discourse today. I do recommend listening to it. So going already into the, into the, the more granular conversation now, you talked about internal world and it's interesting to me because just this week, I had a conversation with a few friends over, over falafel, by the way, it was incidentally, it happened over in a falafel place um, about this question of an inner world and what it actually means. And I, I, two of my friends reacted uncomfortably when I suggested that, you know, I, I don't think I necessarily have a perspective on this myself as a historian. That's not the sort of history that I focused on. But I, even when I proposed this idea that is, is certainly not new, that an inner world in, in that sense is, is something that is a first separate from, from the rest of the world and B is the, an, an autonomous source for your identity and your uh, something that by which you define yourself, that this is an idea that is, if not exclusive, relatively unique to the, to the Christian tradition, to the post St. Paulian tradition. And that you can see how 
different d- literary works from from around the same time as St. Paul and certainly before it didn't understand the individual in the same way as 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 the the sort of St. Paul synthesis where he combined, you know, some some Greek philosophy, some Stoic philosophy with his own like Judeo-Christian uh, I don't know, witchcraft. So I, I'd like you to, to drill into this and explain exactly what happened, how cultures understood the individual and, and its relationship with the world, with the, uh, you know, ineffable. We talk so much about the modern subject and the modern individual and the rise of the modern subject, but really we, we, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, we, we often ignore the question of what is it like not to be? a modern subject or not to be an individual at all. And people were not individuals, certainly not as we understand the word today, uh, 2000 years ago and, and further back. And, and even, even after that, it, it really depends where you draw the line. But, but I'll, I'll give two, two ways of trying to elucidate what I mean. The first is the, the simple fact that when you met people on the street, let's say on the Agora, right? Uh, 2000 years ago or, or the like, you would not meet in your understanding an individual. You would meet someone who is the son or daughter of the wife or husband of the father or mother of a member of some tribe, of some clan, of some uh, class or caste, right? These objective, meaning outwardly, sort of worldly um, characteristics were written as far as you were concerned on the body of that person and you would meet them and they would define that person for you and they would define that person also for themselves right people didn't think of themselves as a, a, a monad that could presumably if it wanted a cut out separate from its social ties and, you know, fly off to Berlin and rent a room and, and start uh, working as a waiter or whatever. They, they didn't, it was not even conceivable. You were a part of your family. You were a part of your tribe, a part meaning a member, a member meaning... Literally a member. Yeah, a, 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 an arm or a leg of a, a certain organic body, which simply composed, comprised of some tens of uh, people or, or whatnot, right? So this is how people thought of themselves. They are in a certain social matrix and they are that certain social matrix. They define themselves by it and they don't define themselves by what they wish, what they feel, what they dream, what they hope, what they remember or not. How... how, how uh, you know, they, 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 they picture themselves internally that had no meaning or it wasn't meaningful at all. So that's the first way people were conceived. And by the way, you can see it uh, manifested in, 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 uh, no. So first of all, really, I mean, we know you by, by name, you know, go, I mean, you're in Israel now, people are called their, the family name. Son yeah. Son of, or Abu something is father of in Arabic, right? People are defined by their uh, familial relations. And of and, uh, today it's almost, you know, it's just uh, nominal. But in the past, that was your definition. That was who you were. 
Another way this manifests in the real world, so to speak, and not only in people's consciousness, is, is in laws, right? If you look at Hammurabi's laws, this is old Babylonian uh, laws from the third millennium BCE. And you, if you look at Assyrian laws from the same time, uh, approximately, you will see rules, laws that say that punish people by having their children executed or tortured or raped or whatever, right? But this, this is done not arbitrarily. It, it is done as a result of that, the, the punished person sin or crime, sorry, against a certain member of the other family or tribe. So to give, to give a, a practical example, uh, and this is a, a, an actual Babylonian law. I am a builder. I built a house. I, they did a terrible job. And the house falls uh, and kills the son of the landlord, the son of the person I built the house for. My son is then executed. We understand the logic here. This is an eye for an eye. But it's an eye for an eye where my son is a member of my body, right? It's, he's just an extension of my existence as a legal subject. And he is not a legal subject, my son. He, again, is just a member of myself, right? This is the sort of logic we have. This is a sort of understanding. People are not accountable by themselves. They are not subjects by themselves. They're all in the individuals. They are members of somebody else, of, of the patriarch, right? This is patriarchy of a certain patriarch, uh, which is the only legal subject around. This is not being an individual. So this is my first way of explaining. But do you have something to say? No, no, no. I, I wanted you to give... Okay. Go ahead. So the second, second way is more psychological and, uh, and, and, and subjective way. And this is the way people understood the borderline, so to speak, between themselves and the world. And they did not conceive of themselves as having a clear boundary uh, between subjective and objective, between what we call subjective and objective, what we, our differentiation of the world into subjective reality and objective reality is one of the most fundamental uh, ways in which we understand our world. This is the ABC of the world we live in, right? Your thoughts, your memories, your feelings. That's one sort of thing. What uh, uh, Descartes uh, would say, uh, res cogitans, right? And then there's another sort of wholly different thing, which is res extensa, which is things in the world, objective tables and chairs and stuff. What people 2,000 years ago, etc. I'm just giving 2,000 as a, as a typological number. It's, it's, you know, thousands of years ago and, and, and until, and in different degrees until a few hundred years ago, how people conceive themselves is in a way that this boundary did not exist as it exists for us, right? There was a reality, a levels of reality cascading from the uppermost heavens to our inner what a psyche or soul or spirit or whatnot. And these levels were always influential or always influenced one uh, on the other, right? If something happened in the heavens, things also happened within me. But not only was there a correspondence and a resonance all the time between my inner world and everything else, but there were actual 
physical actions, physical, I mean, as a, meta, as a sort of a metaphor, but, but this is what people thought, physical actions of objective, what we would call objective um, agents on my subjective, what we would call subjective world, as in, right, right. Or, I mean, take the first line of the Odyssey and the Iliad. The Homerus, let's say, is calling upon the muse to, to give him song, to give him the ability to create. He does not have creativity inside himself waiting to be manifested outside. He needs the actual muse, not a muse as in a good mood, a creative mood, what we would understand today as a muse, but a, a demigod called the muse, actually a, a, a being, to do something for him, right? And, and there's, the, you know, the, there are married stories like that. Uh, I mean, and again, take the Odyssey, people charge into battle and ask Athena to give them courage or really actually they don't charge into battle until Athena actually thrusts courage into their chests. And it's actually written that way. Now we, when we read today, this sort of thing, we say, we say, ah, okay, this is a nice metaphor that Homerus is using here. Uh, you know, it's poetic and, and, and lovely, but actually they did not understand this as metaphors. They understood. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the goddess comes and, and inserts courage into you otherwise you're not brave right and you can't you can't charge into battle i mean where would you get courage from it doesn't come from inside it doesn't come it's, it's not your autonomous making it comes from outside from a goddess and i think the the where where it got confusing at least on that dis- debate over falafel is that the distinction is obviously the, the emotions are humans still be having been human 3,000 years ago, they still feel it inside of them. The point of well, what you mean by they didn't have the same idea of an inner world is that emotions and, and thoughts and motivations were not self-generated, were not autonomously generated. They did not think of them, of most emotions as self-generated, like fear. Somebody inserted fear into me, otherwise I would not be afraid, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And another thing, they also did not think of their emotions as meaningful as we do, right? Yeah, you feel something, okay. That doesn't really matter. They were not defined by right. the, the totality of their emotions. That's, that was not their identity. Their identity was being a piece of the greater whole. Right. Exactly. We place a lot of emphasis and meaning on our feelings. Our feelings sometimes are the most important things for us. We have to follow them, be true to them, be authentic about it right, et cetera, et cetera. Otherwise we are in bad faith or we are alienated from ourselves or we are uh, traumatized or we are oppressing or, you know, et cetera. All sorts of explanations or theories, pop psychology or real psychology of how we are not listening enough to our feelings. But for them, the feelings are, I'm, I'm not saying they're not meaningful at all, but they're certainly not the most important thing in life. What is most important in life is being part of the collective, doing what you should do, and, and being true, not to yourself, but to God's law, uh, um, uh, religious figures, the king, etc. Your, your father, your patriarch, your family. 
One of the difficult things about this, though, and and I wonder how how you approach it. We share an underlying assumption that other people won't necessarily agree with that the basic epistemological makeup of society was not the same, that humans did not conceive of themselves the way they do today, right? And, and I think you even go through some length at the beginning of your book to assert that. Don't assume that people 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, understood themselves, their role in society, or what even identity means in the same terms, in the same delineations as we do today. But what are we basing this on? Intuitively, I think this is the sort of scholarship that always appealed to me when I read the, some of the more foundational writings that lead to hypersubjectivity. It's irresistible to look at the past and see, well, clearly they understood the world completely different. And one example uh, I interviewed a long time ago, uh, uh, the Yale professor wrote about the early uh, pilgrims of New England and, and witches and all that, and writes beautifully about how witchcraft was taken for granted. It was part of the tapestry of the world. And as such, how can you even argue with it? The fact that physicists from today will come in and like, obviously this did not happen that way. It doesn't matter because subjectively, belief in it was all that mattered in terms of social power. I come from full agreement, so I immediately understand what you're saying. But others, for instance, my friend who is literally a physicist, We'll hear all this, and this is why the humanities are losing funding. This is why we shouldn't take seriously anything that you're saying, because what does it actually mean? In truth, witchcraft doesn't exist. In truth, the individual is an individual. The, the family is a family. The people still had an understanding that they are not their father. They, were not they knew that they were not literally part of their uh, parents. How do you tackle this? Let me say first, I'm not here to prove anything, okay? I don't think we can prove things in the humanities or in history. We're not there. We don't have a time machine. Even if we were to have one, this is subjective feelings. How can you actually probe into people's mind and prove that they think differently? Especially 2,000 years. Yeah, but I will say... Uh, Again, I'm, I'm, what I set out to do as, in this case, let's say a cultural historian, is try to figure out from things we do have today, left over from those times, texts and activities we know uh, probably happened due to texts and ceremonies, rituals, uh, to see how these people thought. I mean, again, let's, let's take that Babylonian law about the, you know, me being a builder and killing a landlord's son and my son being executed. These people were not dumber than us and they were not evil. They were as good and as smart as us. And what they wrote as law made sense to them as much as we see it today as a monstrosity and as a despicable, you know, invention of the human mind. I want to understand how is it possible for them to think that this is justice, to, to, to kill my son because I killed someone else's son. Why is this in their understanding justice, right? Yes, I can write it off as, oh, these people were obviously primitive and, and uh, just a bunch of idiots, right? Of course, right? But if I do give them credit, I can then discover that they thought about things differently. And then I want to discover how did they think about it differently, right? Let me give you another example that also uh, relates to, the, uh, to our modern conception, Christian conception of, the, of freedom of religion, okay? In the holiday of Hanukkah, 
Uh, we celebrate uh, you know, the, the, the Hashmonites, our priestly family of Jews, um, conquering and um, defeating the, the Greeks in about uh, 160 AD, uh, so, sorry, B- BCE, and, and ruling uh, Jerusalem for some time. Now, as a part of the lore, there's a story about what we call Hannah and her seven sons. Uh, this woman is actually never named Hannah in, in any source. There, there are a few historical, like ancient texts that mention this woman, but, but let's call her Hannah for, you know, that's what she, and, and she has seven sons. And so the, the Greeks come to her and say to her, okay, we, we want now your sons to worship uh, Zeus and to worship our emperor. Both are gods, of course. And if you don't, we will execute you and the sons one by one, right? And, and of course, they refuse because they are martyrs. And so they execute the first son, the second son, the third son. They, who, who, none of them would bow down to the emperor sitting beside them. And, 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 so, and in their conception, of course, idol worship, worship an idol, which is forbidden under Torah laws, even unto death. Uh, we are executing now six young boys and we come to the seventh the youngest of course and and the mother is there hannah is there looking and weeping obviously and her boys are being executed the the seventh boy who was small and innocent the the emperor felt for him and he said you know what i'm going to make it easy for you i'm going to drop this coin or this stamp it's not clear and and you just pick it up and picking it up you will bow down to me right and bowing down to me, um, you know, I let you go and let your mother go. And, and of course, he refuses and he kills him. And, and then the mother commits suicide. Lovely, lovely tale, right? To, to celebrate Hanukkah with. Okay. Now, let's think about it. Let's think about it. Around the Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ironically, of course. Let's think about what we just heard. There are these people, Jews, uh, living in the second century BCE. Who, who want, who obviously want to worship Jehovah and do not want to worship idols, but what do they consider idol worship? Say, uh, say the Romans, uh, Roman legionaries or Greek uh, Greek uh, uh, soldiers came to me and told me, "Look, bow down to this statue of Zeus, and, and and we will spare your life, or we will kill you." I, as a Jew, I'm not, you know, I'm not a worshiper of Zeus. I'm not a, in the cult of Zeus. But, but what would I do? I would, I would bow down probably, you know, and in, 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 inside, in my thoughts or in my heart, I would say, fuck Zeus, like, you know, this is total BS and I'm not, you know, I'm just doing this for, you know, and this is just show, whatever, just to get these Greek idiots off of me, fanatics, right? So, so that's... In your heart of hearts, you yeah. will, you will denounce it. I will denounce it and yeah, nothing happened as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, like I bowed, but I thought, you know, inwardly I thought that this is bullshit and (laughs) whatever, right? These people 2,200 years ago, not only could not accept that reality, but it went so far as the, the young boy would not even bow down to take a coin from the ground even that was too much of idol worship in his eyes. And, and guess what? It was also enough idol worship in the eyes of the Greeks. Both Greeks and Hebrews at that time thought that the outer movement, the outer ritual of bowing down, even if intentionally you were completely in, in another place, 
You didn't believe it. You didn't even mean it. It's just picking up a coin. This is enough for you to worship an idol or the emperor in this case, which is an idol. So what do I learn from this story? I learned from this story that intent and thought and feeling are completely meaningless as far as these people are concerned when it comes to religious worship. Just doesn't mean anything. What means is what you do with your body. And indeed, we know that the Jewish halakha, the Jewish law, is all the time concerned about what you do with your body. How you pray, when you pray, what you eat, how you eat, what you bless, how you plow your field, and how you go to war. And if you look at the halakha, if you look at the Talmud, look at the Talmud, it, 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 it does from time to time, mention inner intent, but quickly makes it clear that it really actually doesn't matter. So uh, about that, a topic that came up in this conversation, uh, the question of thou shalt not covet, how does that play into it? Okay, so I'm not, there are a few mentioning of feelings in the law. You don't covet your neighbor's wife. Uh, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Yeah, that's also, yeah. But usually these words, which we would today ascribe feelings to them, and I imagine they, they were also feelings in the past, really mean more than what we think today as feeling, because they meant a feeling and an action, right? is also being faithful to God in ritual and in worship, right? It's always connected to a larger context of what you need to do about it, not only to feel, right? And if you look at you will see that it comes at the bottom of a list of rules. Elaboration of what it means. Yeah. You should not create a sim- uh, an idol. Or a- right, yeah, like you should, thou shall not this, and thou shalt do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And thou shalt love thy Lord, thy God. Like this means when you do this and don't do all the things that are prohibited, etc. That means that means that you love the Lord your God. Yeah, it, whether or not in the what's his name John Winston version of 1984, the idea of whether you love Big Brother deep down or not, yeah. that doesn't matter. It's what you do. I will say there are a few instances that it does matter. Like in the Bible, we see the prophets. In the prophets, we, we see the roots or the, the, the first blossoms even of this emphasis on the inner worlds. There is a prophet who, who will say, I think it's Ezekiel. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly. Or Jeremiah. They love you in their mouth, but not in their hearts. Right? They say whatever is, they're supposed to say, but they actually don't feel it. So you see these sort of little uh, criticisms of, of doing things by rote, of ritualistic behavior, but you see it in the prophets, not anywhere else. And the tradition that picked up this, uh, this emphasis, this, this, this avenue of understanding religion is Christianity. And indeed, Jesus and Paul, especially Paul, would put a lot of emphasis on the inner worlds, and from them, the Western world obviously uh, continues and and you know accelerates this emphasis until we have what we have today. And now, 
we're back to to the modern world and you've lived for the past three years that we've described at what might be the epicenter of individualism of what individualism has wrought so how did you like that and again for context you grew up in israel you lived in jerusalem you lived in in a place that still has a lot of the traces of a more i communitarian conception of life being in jerusalem every time i visit here I can feel it physically, the conflict between Americanism and that push for more individuation, more consumer-centric worldview, intention, in friction with the, the tribe. I mean, certainly you're right. I mean, uh, the U.S. is obsessed with individualism, obsessed with autonomy, uh, and to the point that people actually believe that they are separate monads, You know, um, um, hovering through uh, space with no actual, uh, unencumbered by any social ties. I just wanted to steal the mic because we keep using the word monad. I think we used it a million times during the podcast. And just because we are already down the rabbit hole of philosophical geekery, it's a, to anybody who doesn't know, it's a phrase from Leibniz's work that, describes or was suggested as a solution to the one of the oldest debates in Western metaphysics, which is the famous mind-body problem. How does something of the spirit exert power over the material world and vice versa? How does the material world impact the mind or the spirit? And Descartes famously gave us dualism, just accepting that those are two separate entities and And Spinoza, my beloved Spinoza, gave us pantheism, where everything is the spirit and the, the, the body and the spirit, the material and the spiritual are just two different attributes or two different aspects of the same singular reality, the same singular substance. And Leibniz gave us monadism, which is, no, everything is tiny particles of spirit. Spirit inhabits everything. everything but it, it is the fundamental and what's interesting about it and what makes it the, this little metaphor more appropriate to describe American culture than than is comfortable to admit is that Leibniz's solution to the question of how the physical is affected by matter was that it's not really affected nothing really is the direct result of the spiritual causes but rather everything works autonomously and because of its own inherent logic so in his view of the world if you take for example uh, bowling the pins that shoot off aren't being pushed by the kinetic force of contact with the the, the bowling ball but by their own the volition it's not the transference of energy from one object to another rather the pins autonomously knew that they were to shoot off at the exact moment the ball seems to hit them blowing off at that moment was inscribed into their monadic identity in other words the monad is so self-sufficient it is a self-driving vehicle it has no need for interaction with the outside world it is its, its entire story is already inscribed in it and that's the american right it's a totally self-sustaining 
self-believing, self-referencing being. Uh, totally. And, and, you, and like, I mean, uh, an easy example is that the state response to the COVID crisis, right? In California, I mean, we, we, we suffered because we didn't have school for the kids, right? But all through the year and, and like a month in which we didn't have school, the, the year and a month that there was strong COVID you know, uh, restrictions, at no time were we unable to get in the car and go wherever we want. I mean, sometimes there were like recommendations or even, you know, please don't go from county to county or whatever. But it, I don't, I didn't see that it was ever enforced, right? You basically could do whatever you liked. And we did. We, 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 uh, we trekked and hiked in nature along, uh, a lot and basically that kept us sane. So, and in Israel, you had restrictions like you couldn't go 500 meters over 500 meters around your house, right? So very serious restrictions. And, and look now, we came from the US, our kids, because they're not vaccinated, were two weeks in curfew, in, in quarantine, sorry. In the US, if I were now to go back to the US, nobody would be in quarantine. We just, just, you know, get off the plane, do whatever you like, right? This whole, and it's, it's like, and in the US, the thing is that they don't imagine they can even do that, right? For the government to tell you not to go over 500 meters out of your house? <laughs> Are you joking, right? And here, you know, people got fined by policemen because they, so, so that, that's just, you know, an obvious example, but it's all over. Uh, and, and, and it was it was amazing to see it, right? And you see this as you see this as the end point or the the ultimate uh, over adoption of the Saint Paulian inner world, right? I mean, certainly, but it's it keeps expanding. I mean, the U.S. is at the forefront of this Polish um, and 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 yeah, I mean, hyper a hyper Christian emphasis on the inner world and on the individual. It's so Christian that it's, it doesn't even have Christianity in it anymore because, because if every, all, whatever counts is only your heart and your feelings at the end, you don't even need Jesus. Right. And, and, you know, an easy way to, to show how much this is, this is emphasized in the U S is the whole polemic, I don't know how to call it, the whole discourse over trans rights, right? Over, over trans people. Like the fact that people are rooting for the option that your will or feelings and only them will define which gender and even which sex you are, right? Define not for yourself, define for everybody else because it's in your, it's sporting events and bathrooms and whatever, right? This is the ultimate, at least for now, show of the, 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 the triumphant uh, inner world over the outer world, the subjective over the objective. It doesn't matter at all what body you have, how you were born, how you were raised, what your genes are. Doesn't matter. What matters is how you feel and what you wish for yourself to be, right? And I think it's not only, and let's, 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 
let's pause a moment and notice. It's not only that this is the reality or this is what people, uh, you know, talk about as something that is true, right? It is also an ideal, right? And I think this is part of the reason that, that the trans rights are so, uh, are such a hot topic because it, because they, they lie on the pulse of this ideological current inside Christendom, inside the Western world, let's say, right? And excuse me for <laughs> bringing up, I mean, and because, and people are invested in it because they, they basically are saying the soul is more important than the body. And you should, you know, you have to acknowledge what the soul, you have to acknowledge the redemption of the soul and the body doesn't matter at all. That's basically what they're saying. Simply, you know, translated and secularized, etc. Is, is it is it something that you, aside for the cushiness that, that this reality has created, because obviously the customer is always right. Philosophy is another product of this idea. The only measure by which a society's success or flourishing can be can be judged right are the individuals happy do they have enough cars remember people in america and, and really the western world judge other societies by the level of private liberties that society grants now we talk a lot about liberty but what do we actually mean by liberty what what we mean what westerners mean by liberty today at least is the unencumbered undisturbed allowance to do whatever you want Right, it's 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 what what Isaiah Berlin would call negative liberty. Nobody forces me to do anything I don't want or impedes my doing what I do want. That's liberty, right? And so the government needs to butt out of my business, and society needs to butt out, and my family, and I will do whatever I want. And this is liberty, right? Again, it's a certain conception of liberty. Obviously, we need to recognize it. It's temporal. It's, it's conditional on our own world and our social conditions today, but this is what we mean. And, it, and we mean it, we mean we understand liberty in that way because we emphasize individuality and autonomy so much. What are the, 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 the negative aspects of it that you've encountered? So first of all, obviously we need to acknowledge that there, there must be also negative and negative repercussions, no social phenomena is only good, right? I mean, I think, first of all, people ignore the very fundamental way in which we are all connected together, in which we are all encumbered and tied to social surroundings. It's, I mean, basically, at the end, it's an illusion to think that you are your own making, that you are a, a sort of a monad, a, a separate individuality, you know, hovering in space. It's just, that doesn't exist. Obviously, you were made by your family, by your society. You, you know, whatever you are is because you are conditioned by what you've passed through. And not only that, not only your whole personal makeup is whatever you went through, etc., but we need others to validate us. We need others to live with us. We need others to witness us, to witness our experiment experiences. And without this validation and the, the gaze of the other, we are very lonely and indeed we will question our very existence. I don't know if you read 
uh, David French's latest op-ed, he wrote beautifully about how lonely American society is, which is, I think, something to anyone from the outside and probably for a lot of Americans is patently obvious. And then he, he, he went a step further and touched something that I've been toying with myself for, I think, four or five years about how this loneliness uh, translates into totalitarian politics. And because without so actual social commitments, of course, you're happy to jump into sacrificing your, your neighbors and give them up to the Gestapo or the Stasi or whatever it is. And it's, it's, it's a funny twist because when you think normally about totalitarian um, regimes, you think of over tribalism, right? Over conformity. There's this unifying idea and then everybody who doesn't fall into it should be sacrificed. But he's highlighting how also the monadic nature of Americans is what's fueling this on, on the left, this neo-Soviet approach to politics and on the right, this pseudo greater good philosophy, let the dictator of our choosing enforce morality on the public. But why is the monad Yeah, so, so the reason that it's the monadic existence that leads to it is that the loneliness, when people are too withdrawn, they stop seeing the interpersonal as a space for political progress. They lose faith in the ability to converse with your neighbors if you disagree with them and to reach localized agreements that will actually make a difference on your immediate surroundings, but instead find proxy wars to fight in the abstract, whether it's an ideology or a power figure, a parental power figure that you're willing to submit to that you'll think will mete out justice. But in the meanwhile, your neighbors or the people in the next town are no longer your political partners. They become less and less real to you than the grand ideology or the strong man that you have submitted yourself to. And certainly have become disposable in the name of that ideology. Interesting, interesting. I explain the same process that he does in a different way using the concept of identity. I think monadic existence threatens our sense of identity. And in order to solve that problem, and this is perhaps the greatest problem people have, is who they are, what is meaningful, what are they living for, what is, what is the meaning of their life, etc. To solve that problem, you either hatch up to the state, like you, are, you vow allegiance to the state, then this is nationalism, or you take up some ideology, right? Which also gives you a sense of identity and meaning, right? Both of these structures, social structures, the state or an ideology, both of them allow you, on the one hand, to have an individual identity and a meaning, meaningful life, and on the other hand, uh, you know, encumber your daily life as little as possible, and we should notice that because most people looking for a meaningful life will not become Franciscan monks or nuns or will not join a, a close community, uh, let's say, uh, um, you know, found a community or move into a village or etc. They, they will let, hatch up with these sort of very, very wide superstructures which on the one hand give them meaning and on the other demand very little on them in way of 
daily life. And this is the modern way of giving yourself identity and meaning while keeping your autonomy and individuality. I think it was, I don't, okay. I know it was <laughs> Georg Zimmel, one of the fathers of sociology, German uh, sociologist in the beginning of the 20th century. He, he has a, a wonderful article in which he, he, he says, look, the wider your social circle is, the more individuality and autonomy you have. If you live in a clan, you have very little autonomy. You are the son of, the daughter of, the husband or wife of, you have some duties, you are totally not in control of what you will do with your life. You will be a hunter-gatherer or you will be a carpenter or you will be, that's what you do, that your father did it and you will do it and you will marry at a very young age. Your whole life is set on a track. If you live in a village, you have some more freedom, but still everybody knows everybody. Everybody's in from the same uh, religion or cult, uh, I mean, worship way and, and etc. Again, you have very little autonomy. Moving into a city, you have much greater autonomy. And in the modern nation state, you have the greatest autonomy because you're only an individual among millions of others answering to some government or whatever. Now, the greater the reference unit, the smaller your own scope of identity. No, you have the same identity, but less obstruction on your daily life. Right? The greater the circumference that you identify with, the more personal autonomy you have. If you identify with a village, you live in a village, right? You have very little autonomy. A town or, or, a, or a neighborhood, more so. And a nation, and this is, and basically this is why the modern nation state rises up with modern individualism. They correspond and they complement each other, right? By the way, not as contrary to what many people think that modern nation states are a hindrance to your autonomy. No, they guarantee your individuality. But people then, I mean, I'm not talking about fascism, etc. This is also, this is a different twist, but... You, you then draw your meaning for your life from that ideology or state. So I'm assuming the reason this ends up being this way, if we accept this explanation, is because in order to assert its own power, a nation state tends to eat away and actively reduce the authority of lower frameworks of governance. And in trying to create a monopoly over power, they limit the ability of smaller localities to independently abridge the rights of citizens. The nation state establishes itself as a patron of rights, supposedly defending its citizens from avaricious local governments. So a town doesn't get to independently ban its own books or fully assert its own legal system. But that obviously creates the opening for the state to become the new abridger of rights. Yeah, but, but no, first notice, I was talking about a slightly different thing. I was talking about the individual's conception of the meaning of life, of their, you know, their, con their, 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 their um, relationship to a larger reality. So the individual identifying with the state can have a horizon of meaning, a, a, you know, an afterlife of, a, of sorts in the Hall of Fames of national, you know, heroes or whatever, right? But their own individual private life is 
almost unobstructed. What you're saying is, wait a minute, the state can actually obstruct your personal life. And that is, of course, true. And, you know, has been witnessed easily in the 20th century with totalitarian regimes as fascism and Bolshevism. And indeed, in those regimes, as you just said, what they want to do is to cut off the middlemen, the, uh, you know, organizations such as worker guilds or families or identification with townships or, or other ideologies or religion, churches, they need to get the churches out, etc. That's, that's, of course, true, right? But that's already on the part of the regime trying to circumscribe, you know, the, the freedom of, of the individual, the autonomy of the individual. Okay, but that's something else. It, it can happen. But what I was saying is that the very idea of the nation state of identification with th- such a broad framework such a large number of people organized together or tied together by very abstract concepts as being German, right? Or being Italian, right? Instead of being a Catholic from, uh, you know, Sicily and basically identifying with your neighborhood at the most, right? Or with the local church or whatever. These things actually enhance your autonomy as an individual, and that's why they rose together, the modern individual and the nation state. And you think that the the political reality of the nation state allowed for the maximization of this trend towards individualism? Or did it actually create it? Because I can see an argument that, again, people who would dismiss the validity of cultural history would say, Sure, you tie it now to this old tradition to, um, towards internalization of, of the conscience and of, of the individual. But in truth, it was a political reality that allowed for the consolidation of power in the nation state. And it's vis-a-vis that changes that the modern individual and the concept of individual rights has arisen. I mean, you know, obviously this is a bit of a chicken and egg question because these realities are so conditioned on each other. They need each other in order to function. But uh, yes, but as you said, I would, I would begin with a process of internalization of individuals, meaning a process in which our inner worlds whatever, you know, feelings and wishes and wills matter more and more for us in terms of identity and, uh, and authority. And that then pushes us to create a very broad framework, a state in which our autonomy is protected, what we call our rights, our personal liberties are protected by that state, right? This is John Locke. John Locke says, I mean, wh- why are we, uh, why are we uh, in a commonwealth in order to protect our personal liberties, our property, etc.? So that's why we do it. And, and, you know, the United States is the exact manifestation of this Lockean, you know, plan. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, we all know, I, I assume, you know, at least Americans, by heart that famous sentence that we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are endowed, certain, that, 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 life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What is the next sentence, though? Right? The next sentence is this Lockean idea. To preserve these rights, governments are, I think, founded or established by men. Right? Why are we doing this? Why are we rebelling against the British and trying to form a commonwealth to preserve these rights? So this emphasis of the autonomy of the individual 
the personal liberties that must be preserved makes us imagine first this you know idea of a social contract which of course is an idea I mean, you know we never actually ran around naked killing each other until we banded together and decided to live in a Commonwealth etc so this idea first gets formalized articulated and then we actually make it happen the United States again is the epitome of this of actually making this a reality because it's a new country a country of immigrants people came there and And did it. Other countries where people already lived there and had tradition, political traditions of millennia made it in different versions and not so exactly Lockean. But, but that's the basic thing. I want to ask you about your individual experience now a little bit. I, I was following you on Instagram on your way back where you <laughs> did the full cross-country road trip. Well, you know, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is the vastness. the the simple enormity of this land it is huge and you drive and drive and drive and through deserts or through forests through marshes just doesn't end in f- like for an Israeli to to drive that way to to you know to see on the little Google Maps or ways application in 500 miles turn right like this you know not in 20 miles which or less but This vastness and how clearly, at least in my eyes, this lends to the American ethos and even um, self-understanding of unlimited possibility. That just everything is possible. And, and indeed, you know, people coming from Europe in which land and gentry, as we say, were a class of their own and in the elite, and suddenly they can have land. They can actually have land of the, for themselves. And if somebody bothers them, well, they just go a little bit westward and they live there, right? And maybe slaughter a few natives in the process. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and say, oh, yeah, this whole land is ours, of course, in, in sort of manifest destiny sort of... Uh, Delusion. Anuit coaptis, you know, it's written on the dollar. Uh, heaven nods affirmatively to our endeavors, right? This is... Yeah, this is ours and, and we are God-given. This is God-given to us. And, and yes, there are some Indians which we, we brush aside very easily, basically, and, and just continue. Really, I think this, this has so much to do with the unlimited possibilities, cliche and ethos. And really also just the, the beauty of, of nature in the United States. I, I, don't, I mean, to see the Grand Canyon, to see... Yellowstone Park to see arches to see Monument Valley to see the Smoky Mountains these these are things that really bring you to an to awe and again I think it has a psychological impact it's amazing it's enormous it's wonders of the earth that you see and you you know stand in awe against to some extent at least it's also reaffirms the loneliness of the individual or at least the tininess insignificance yeah so and 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 tininess from from one point of view, loneliness from one point of view, at the same time, it's your complete independence and your complete uh, uh, you know unconnectedness with anyone else. You're a frontier person, basically charting out your own path. really this this I, I, I'm, I'm sure this in so much informed how Americans understand themselves and the world around them. So so this in in first place. And secondly, really just 
just how interesting and how how diverse things are. Even you know, just passing borders from Texas to Louisiana. Texas, nobody wears a mask, and in Louisiana, they do wear masks. And you know, it's the South, but <laughs> you know, COVID-wise, every state has their own bit of consciousness. You know, unique uh, identity, right? You said off mic that that there was something uh, psychologically that he encountered as as a form of homecoming when he went there. This was, you know, just my 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 coming for the first time, or you know, except for small journeys here and there. And really, I didn't travel the U.S. as a young person. Never. Uh, India is my thing. <laughs> so coming to the U.S. just over the last few years, really for the first times, and then staying there, and and yes, and feeling a, a strange feeling of homecoming. And I asked myself, what is this? Why am I feeling like everything is familiar and I am actually at last at home, right? And what I thought I understood, what I, I, what I think is the reason is that I am finally at the place that I have seen over and over and over again in different TV shows and movies, Hollywood movies, obviously, and so, so it's ah, this in, in like Seinfeld and Friends and 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 you're right and, and Mission Impossible and you're seeing these places and ah, yes, this is what a police station is supposed to look like and this is what a fire truck is supposed to look like and a street is supposed to look like and a mall is supposed to look like and an intersection is supposed to look ah, and a taxi finally right, this is reality. Right, this is how things are. I am. I was living in a sort of fractured reality or a shadow of this ideal, actual place. You, you escaped Plato's cave finally, and you saw the real, the ideals in their actual, you know, existence. Finally, yeah. I think this is a theme that has, has come up several times when I talk to with Nadavial. I remember we always talk about that. As, as the empire in whose shadow our little province exists. And it's, it's weird and it's crazy to, to understand how, how brainwashed we are for better and for worse. And, and a lot of it is for better. Like you, can, you can appreciate some of the virtue as well as the damage caused by having our collective minds shaped by this Leviathan. I wonder what you're thinking now at this pivotal moment where America is, the United States is clearly abdicating its responsibility as an empire, is unraveling internally. Whether or not it will remain even a republic is a question. Certainly whether or not it will remain as a unified republic. But what seems even more obvious is that it has no appetite, no propensity to still be a world police. The, the city on the hill has, you know, is closed for business. What's your feelings about that? I mean, in one word, my feeling is terror. I think it's not as conclusive as you described, you know, Biden with the American is back thing and everything. And he said that and then called back the forces from Afghanistan. Yeah, okay, so yeah, I mean, but certainly, I mean, the United States is leaving the Middle East. That's certainly true. But I'm not one of those who think this empire is an evil empire, at least only evil. I think the alternative is much worse. China is much worse. I, what they are doing now Xinjiang, is yeah. is an atrocity. And and I and, and and personally, I don't want to find out what it is to live in a in, under the 
you know, the sphere of influence of a Chinese empire. I have no wish to do that. So with all the evil that the United States has done, and it has done, I think it has done enormous good also in the world. And, and if it's backing off or worse, cracking up internally and simply ceasing to exist as an empire, personally, I, I'm afraid of that. It's a frustration that I, I encounter in having these arguments, often specifically with Americans. It's as if they believe that American retreat will just mean going back to an early 20th century balance of power, nation states, as if the vacuum will not be filled. Exactly. They, and, and there's no reckoning, it seems to me, with, publicly, either in the United States or in, in Europe, but what it will look like to not exist in a place where you're propagandized by American values. And that terrifies me. Actually, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this back. I, I, some people do seem to reckon with this, possibly even scares me more when I hear people. I, I, I had a conversation with a German entrepreneur, extremely wealthy, and he told me, you know, we could use to learn more from the China model. Look, democracy gave us Trump. Trump has abandoned the Paris Accords, has neglected his responsibilities. China gets things done. They, you know, they make the trains run on time. And to also the added value of hearing that from the German accent was beautiful. Um, I mean, it's so disappointing that people just don't really think ahead. Like, it's, it's unbelievable to me to hear grown-ups talk that way that the misunderstanding that there is no vacuum in nature there are people with you know unwholesome intents uh, if america withdraws nation states like china or russia or others will take advantage of that i mean it's they are already taking advantage of that i mean it's just 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 absurd and so really depressing and yeah, I mean, I mean, the 20th century, the, the Pax Americana, right, after the Second World War, you know, again, had some faults in it, had some really atrocious things happening within it, but it gave stability and enormous prosperity. And yes, uh, a concern for human rights, not all the time, not for everybody. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. But But as things go, as the human civilization is it was the best time to be a person almost all over the world ever basically right i mean unless unless again unless we we introduce religious concerns here which as a religious person i'm prone to i'm not saying maybe maybe at some point in time there are more fully liberated and enlightened people you know i'm saying half jokingly but but maybe right and but apart from these concerns in terms of material prosperity and personal safety i mean it can't be beat and so i'm i'm afraid that that people who think that things will just turn out for the best without america with all its dark sides uh, and as well of course i just think they are very naive what scares me even more is that part of it seems to be a retreat from the very idea of individualism having any merits Maybe, maybe a surveillance state isn't that bad of an idea. Maybe, maybe having a centralized power dictating belief or giving uh, social credit isn't the worst thing. Because look at the income inequality in the U.S. Look at all the, all the malaise that America is undergoing. Clearly, this model has collapsed. 
that, again, for a cultural historian, indicates a trend that could be much more profoundly deleterious than merely America just, uh, you know, abandoning its role in the Middle East. I think really this can only be said by someone who hasn't experienced an authoritarian regime firsthand, who hasn't experienced war, who hasn't experienced any uh, or almost any form of censorship and, and you know, um, uh, conscription of uh, rights for themselves. But I will say something. I don't think... I, I, and, and, and no, and, and let me continue. And the minute these people will experience it, they will rebel. And this is actually my hope because people living in the West with all their compliance right now and sort of naivete, which we just talked about, if, if push comes to shove, if there will be an authoritarian regime trying to tell them what to do, I don't think most of them will stand for it. And I think they won't behave like the current uh, Chinese population behaves. Uh, of course, there are, you know, um, um, dissidents over there also. But, but I think the spirit of personal autonomy and personal and, and even subversion of frameworks, rules, laws that is ingrained very deeply in the Western tradition. And this is actually what my book is also about, Right. This this individuality, this this making autonomy sacred, uh, a sacred ideal. All this is very much deeply ingrained in Western in the Western psyche, and if it is threatened, there will be a reaction. The complacency will be shattered once you know the rubber meets the road. Let's end like last time, going from the empire to the province. Israel Israel has challenged the the ecclesiastical. Uh, <laughs> adage things have changed under the sun under the hot hot jerusalem sun so with the new government with the the under i think it was pre like the corona treatment i think has changed a lot the conversation here i think some of the conversation here has gotten a lot stupider see the conversation in israel adopting a lot more american tropes and i actually think it's a larger trend that we're seeing around the world of ideological convergence where we're either uh European version of a hyper-nationalist right, or we are an American version of a hyper-progressive woke left. Uh, European nationalism was foreign to the US before four years ago, and now it's been fully injected into the body politic. And I think American progressivism was very foreign to Israel and has been since injected. And now I hear, I, I watch some of the public discourse in Israel and it seems to me like, again, Plato's cave's shadow of American conversation or an Urzitz imitation of it. And I think that's a change. I think that's a development for the worse. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think Israelis, especially on the left, by the way, are so susceptible to American ideas and ideals. It's amazing to see Israelis, you know, chanting things like defund the police. I mean, from the, from the far left. I mean, what? It, that doesn't, it, it's so different, that situation here. We don't even have private police. You know, Israel has one police force. That's it. You don't even have like the NYPD and uh, LAPD. It's just... One thing. This, this is one, one police force, and if anything, uh, let's say, um, like, if we're talking about um, uh, minorities and, 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 and disenfranchised 
populations in Israel need more policing in the streets, not on themselves, but uh, but crime is rampant because the Israeli police doesn't care enough about these citizens, right? I'm talking about the Arab minority, right? Race, racism, police racism, if anything, is in neglect, not in over-policing. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, just adopting defund the police or adopting... Uh, um, um, you know, um, critical race theory even to Israel, which again, the situation, the, 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 the axis on which the Israeli political logic and certainly conflict hinges on is not race. It's nationality, it's ethnicity, it's religion a lot of times, right? Jews against Muslims, uh, Jews against Palestinians, um, you know, the, the, we're we're fighting for land. We're fighting for holy, holy sites. We're not fighting about race. Um, of course, there's racism in Israel, like everywhere, basically, right? But it's not about it, and it is about it in the United States. The United States, the political logic and the political crisis hinges upon race, right? We know why. There are historical reasons for it, and then Israelis so easily just, I mean, from the left embrace and adopt these you know these these frameworks of thought that just they don't fit in here it's it's pathetic uh, and it's really saddening and i think i've seen it on the right as well you hear right-wing trumpian rhetoric being emulated by some of the most dominant figures on the israeli right so on the right it's populism like trumpian totally and netanyahu himself adopted it and and you know and 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 broadcast it to the Israeli public, but more than that, there's so this libertarianism, libertarianism exactly. is mind rampant. I heard people talking about in Israel about like Second Amendment type rights. It's like there is no tradition of gun laws. Like I can't even like put to words how absurd and incongruent it is to talk about gun rights in Israel. Exactly. So this sort of import of republicanism, really. Just, you know, take what Republicans say, and now you say it as a right-wing Israeli, right? So gun rights and and libertarianism, and suddenly you're against abortion. Like, again, something that was never an issue in Israel. It's not even an issue in halakha, in Jewish law. Uh, Jewish law is much more lenient towards abortion than Christian and Catholic. It's just, that doesn't make sense. What is this what you care about now? Just because, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, Ted Cruz talks about it. It's ridiculous. It's the ad absurdum version of, of what you were describing about seeing the, the police station for the, in, in America and like feeling that this is a real thing, but actually adopting it into your internal moral processing. And it's mind boggling. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it does show the force of the American empire. Like, it's amazing how, how a little country like Israel, because it is dependent on the U.S., it is in awe of the U.S., it you know, has a special relationship, to quote, right, is so, you know, sensitive and, 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 and uh, to the point of gullibility to these ideological sh- trends in the U.S., immediately adopts them, like, without end, dogmatically, no thinking at all. What does it tell us about the, the state of the world that, that, that those memes are being, being so easily absorbed into, into a political conversation? Do you think that it has a change of actually affecting policy in a way that is just <laughs> so incoherent? Like, are we going to start seeing gun rights voters in Israel? Or is it just something that will exist, you know, on Twitter, Facebook, and in some op-eds, but in reality will fade away 
like a fashion. But it is a fashion, but I think it does influence uh, uh, real political decisions. I mean, Twitter and Facebook, and, and, and the more we are into these social networks and they're more widely dispersed, etc., etc., yes, they are influential. People will make decisions uh, by what they read on Twitter. Uh, and now, again, we are at a stage that most of the population is not in Twitter, does not care too much about Twitter, and when they vote, they don't vote about what's going on in Twitter. But it may change, right? I don't know. We might actually see a party that adopts gun rights as its platform. It's like, yeah, I dread the day. I, it, it's already happened. I mean, when we had uh, just the other government, the former government, uh, the last government, we, we had Amir Ochana as a you know, minister of... Uh, uh, not justice, but he would, later he was, he was justice, but later he was internal security, like pol- basically, basically minister of police. Yes, he wanted to relax gun rules and, for, and, and said that the ideal is that everyone who wants a gun should have a gun, right? It's already happening, right? But, but when I mentioned the new government, you, 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 you scoffed. It, of all things, that's not, you don't see any big change happening on that front. There is a change. It's a real change. Netanyahu is gone. There's a new government. I'm scoffing a bit. I'm raising an eyebrow because this government is at currently is weak. It functions. It barely functions. It barely can pass laws that it wants. And uh, it has a lot of challenges ahead of it in order to prove that it is viable. If it is not viable, it will be a catastrophe for Israel. So it's, I think it's extremely important that this government lives out its days this is a first, this is a non-Netanyahu government, and this is first. This is an, a great achievement after twelve yeah, years. Okay, so so Netanyahu has been prime minister for twelve years, and it's not a coincidence that the U.S. limits uh, terms of presidency. He has amassed a huge amount of power. He knows the system inside out. He has people all over in the media, in the police, in the Justice Department. He's soldiers, as it were. And he is networked totally into the political Israeli political system. He had enormous power, and he used that power in order to do this, dismantle the Israeli institutions because of his ongoing trial. He might end up in jail, and he wanted to cancel the trial or to sabotage it. So it's extremely important that that person is out of office, and I, I hope will not come back. And if he, if because if he comes back again, he will dismantle everything, and and and. And he will come back if this government doesn't function, if a catastrophe happens, of course. Uh, so that's first. Secondly, this is the first government ever who has uh, in the coalition um, uh, uh, an Arab party. Uh, the the Islamic, Islamist party of Israel is in government, which is mind-boggling and just, you know. Never thought would it's nuts. It's nuts. As in, in any case, it's nuts. But this now has to work because if it doesn't work, it will reflect on 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 Israeli politics for for the future. And if it does work, it will also reflect. I mean, if it works, it means that Arab Israelis, I mean, citizens of Israel who are Arabs or Palestinian, will go and vote more. Their rate of voting will increase more. Parliament members will be Palestinian, and now that it is kosher to be, have them in coalition, they will make coalitions with them. This is a, a fantastic boost for the left, for the Israeli left, right? 
or, uh, not to say that it's just logical and, and you know morally you know good having these people represented in government not only in parliament so i really hope it will work I should also note for our listeners that we are uh, having this conversation in my childhood home, which just happens to be on the same street as Netanyahu's childhood home, which is just like down, down, down the street. Recently, <laughs> Netanyahu has been um, forced out of the uh, primer's house, which is a whole saga. They, they seem to be refusing to leave. And as they were leaving, they started building a, a, a small like protective wall around his parental home. It's a unique feature of, of Netanyahu's um, primership, which is it's, it's beautifully symbolic because historically the house of the prime minister was pretty open publicly. Like, you, I mean, you couldn't just go in, but you can, you would walk around it easily. You basically <laughs> shout at it and, and, and protest around it. And it would be available for public, public engagement in, in architecture. And now for the past four years, it's been shielded by those dark walls, roadblocks preventing uh, traffic and b- both foot traffic and car traffic. And you've seen now the same blockade being raised around his parents' house. And it's just, I guess, I guess that's just like they won't feel at home without them. Um, but it's, it's, it tells you a lot about the psychology of a leader and, 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 and what power does to people. Um, so, and that's, 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 I think, an int- the, the, the somber note to end on. But I, do you have any f- concluding thoughts about the state of Israel and the world? And I will, I will even take a video of it for Instagram. So make it good, Tomo. No, no, but ask, ask a specific question. Putting all these ideas together, what about the current vision of the world is, is really occupying you? What do you think right now is the most salient trend? Again, I will use the, the, the two words I used at the beginning, individuality and interiority. You know, and I'll, I'll add a word, identity. I think what we can see is people struggling, negotiating with their individuality by turning inwards, trying to fig, to hinge, to to base their identity on feelings, emotions, wishes, uh, um, 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 intuitions, feelings of authenticity, all these internal like uh, entities, one. But then there's a backlash to that and people then uh, um, wanting naturally to base their identity also on something larger outside. So it's either the nation but it can easily be also a identity politics. I am not first and foremost an individual Tomer that wishes and etc. I am first and foremost a white person or a Jew or a black person, of course, right? Etc. right? So these, this is a little bit of a twist, right? We see here a sort of a backlash to, to what, what matters is what we feel. Now, some people tell us that what matters is where you come from and your ethnic uh, group. Right, and 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 uh, and I, I think these struggles for identity, vis-a-vis from one hand individuality and interiority, and vis-a-vis on the other hand group identity and collective identity, again nationalism ov- obviously plays into it here. Religion plays into it here. I think this is what we're going to continue seeing. I mean, these these fluctuations and negotiations between uh, between these uh, poles. 
I actually have two final rapid fire questions that, that you made me think of. One, it's, it's an old question, this distinction of identity politics, as you described it, putting your, your group identity as your primary identifier, right? Um, you're not Tomer the individual, you are a, a tribe. Ezra Klein, the creator of Vox, now a, a New York Times opinion writer, he, he had this argument that I never set well with me, but I wonder what do you think of it, that all politics is a type of identity politics and all of everything else is just a, a right-wing attempt to re, um, reframe a civil rights movement, a legitimate civil rights movement as an aberration. Well, you know, it depends what we call politics. I mean, do people at all times um, act uh, um, as a part of performing and forming their identity? Yes, that's who we are. We are humans and we have a certain identity that we need to perform and analyze and 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 uh, in some mystical traditions negate etc right yeah that's all about identity but is actual politics what we call politics identity politics no and i think that's a great mistake of seeing everything only through the lens of group identities uh some of it, i mean group identities meaning ethnic identities and etc i mean some some of it is about land some <laughs> Yeah, it's about it's about real estate. It's about how much land we have, how much resources we have. Some of it is about worshiping God in a certain way. Yeah, yes, I of course that relates to identity, but it's not only about who I am. It's only it's also about who who I want you to be, right? You you shouldn't be a Christian. You should be a Jew, etc. Whatever. And right? what, what I want you to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not just me, you know, concerned about my rights. It's me concerned about your next world, you know, um, heaven or hell. So, and so again, and we afterlife, yes. So, so we and we can give other examples. It's not all identity politics as we understand it. No. <laughs> um, I, I wanted on the record a, a good response to it, and and they, I ask the the expert of identity. Um, the last rapid fire question. You recommended a wonderful book, um, Darkness at Noon, by Arthur Kessner. I'm actually I'm still speechless in processing how it, it was written. I believe in like 1940 um, by by an uh, by this journalist who's an ex uh, I think a Hungarian right is an ex Communist Party Hungarian who lived through both the the, the Arthur, Arthur Kessler is uh, lived both through the Nazi occupation I think and the uh, the communist takeover afterwards and ended up killing himself in London years later. Oh, yeah, really? yeah, yeah. He killed himself in London. No, I mean, I mean, he was old anyway at that point. Oh, yeah, I, he, had a, he, had a he had a fruitful career, and then, okay. then years later, he he, he yeah. killed himself with his wife in in London. Um, and I knew him from that that famous essay he wrote, "A Nightmare Is a Reality," where he wrote in the New York Times about how the, all the atrocities, the the rumors about atrocities in Europe against the Jews, are real, and nobody's listening. But in his book, in "Darkness at Noon." tries to tap into the mind of the communist ideologue and uh, who's being put to one of the later show trials himself. But because this character has lived his entire life as a communist apparatchik, he, you, he takes you through the self-explanatory process of figuring out what's the right thing to do, not by his own moral standards, something that he calls the narrative fiction, the self, but by the ideal of the revolution. He has internalized the cold logic of 
Soviet justice, so much so that even when he is trying to decide how to survive this show trial, he is motivated not by self-survival, but by ideological consistency. And in taking you through this logic, Kessler shows how such a blind commitment to an abstract version of justice and logic can be the end of humanity. Because what's the individual when it's compared to the the glory of the revolution? Should he sacrifice himself even though he knows that the accusations are false? That's such a tiny sacrifice, right? The the life of a single person who in order to preserve the people's trust in the vision. What's the life of one person? What's the life of thousands of people when measured against changing and fixing the world to shed tears about falsified testimony or even the execution of an individual when what's at stake is real justice is bourgeois sentimentality, right? It's tortured logic that's so chilling to read depicted and laid out this way, but also maps on so terrifyingly well onto some articles that you actually read today on the New York Times. And and I, I, I was just I'm still my breath is still being taken away by this. I didn't finish it yet. So no spoilers. But I, I just want to hear your thoughts and why why uh, you recommended it. Thank you. I, I really think it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And it's brilliant because it shows the inner workings, the psychological you know, negotiations of a person who is devoted to an ideology he 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 lived all and 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 risked his life for all his life, mm. and this is and he totally believed that he's still a Marxist, right? And, and it's and then it's not the, and, and in that way it's not the same were he a victim of the Nazis, a German like victim, you know, like let's say uh, 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 Hitler, you know, a pure liquidates a part of the SA or whatever. It's not the same. This person has a has an ideology that is scientifically proven as far as he's concerned, right? It's scientifically uh, known that capitalism will self-destruct and that the workers are the only a class that are truly authentic and can be can live a life of non alienation, etc. And then and and what is brilliant about the book is that it's not only him. You see the characters there, and you see the different levels or the different types, sorry, of Marxists. There, so th- there's the there's the lower tier of of just the the ordinary believers, and they, you know, they they were taught in school from when they grew up, and they're not intellectuals. They just believe, right? Everything that the party does is good. Everything that Stalin does is good, and everything that seems bad is just imperialist propaganda. Okay, no problem. Then there's the middle tier of people who, yeah, some things aren't working out. They, they understand that they're not living in a socialist paradise, but it's probably just, you know, obstacles along the way and it's going to, going to be worked out because, I mean, you know, Stalin is, is the greatest brain humanity can, can, uh, can create at this point in time and he will carry us towards the, the promised heaven, uh, you know, utopia. And then there's him. He knows that Stalin is a murderer, a killer, right? As, as Biden said of Putin, right? He knows. He knows that Stalin makes up stories about people he wants to liquidate and purify, etc. Uh, he knows that, and, and he knows that the, the party itself is corrupt and, and crooked to the core. But he's still a Marxist, right? And, and he says, look, everything is crooked, but, but this is the, the last best shot at 
a proletariat paradise. I mean, there's nothing else. There's just, I mean, what are we going to do? We're going to move to the United States with the capitalist pigs, right? No. And and this is the brilliant, the, the, the amazing brilliance of this book that, that it un- understands the inner workings of this person, how he has to explain to himself what's going on, right? And as you said, he, he then he thinks, should I maybe sacrifice myself through this show trial in order to save the revolution? I know Stalin is corrupt, but, but, but still I should play along because this is my little role in forwarding, in, in pushing forward the proletariat utopia that maybe will come. He's not even so sure about it anymore, but, but it's, still, it's still his hope. So it's it's really brilliant and 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 you know it's not it's any ideology that is you know thought out not just racist you know superiority nazi stuff which is isn't very sophisticated in the end but but any sophisticated ideology that is is adopted can function that way so I, I hardly recommend this book darkness at noon the great repeating theme there there he and there, you remember a, a picture taken with all the, the party members and most of them have been liquidated. So at the, some point they stop, they just take out all the pictures from all the offices. And he, rem, he notices every time that he goes into an office that he sees the, the white lining on the wall where the pictures used to be and just, just tells you everything. And, he, and every time he looks at it, he, he, he still, he doesn't even know what to, he knows what it means, obviously, but he doesn't know what it, to make of it within his own worldview like how to interpret it. It's amazing. Tomer, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Adam. It was a pleasure, really. Uh, See you in a year. Thank you for joining on certain things. It's been an awesome year. I mean, it's been a weird year, but you all made it worth it. So thank you. We got a lot of stuff in the works. So follow us wherever you feel like and share it with your friends and enemies. We'll see you soon. Until next time, stay sane.